Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have two other podcasts out there, From John to Justin, which releases every single Friday, and Pucks and Cups, which releases every single Tuesday. I do all of this podcasting full-time, the writing, the research, everything. So every dollar you give helps keep it all going. And if you donate or become a patron, I'll make sure I thank you on the air and throughout my social media. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdho37. Also, I want to say thank you to, and I hope it pronounces correctly, Caruso Haig, who left me a five-star review. I truly appreciate that. Thank you. On December 6, 1917, the largest human-made explosion before the detonation of nuclear weapons would occur an explosion that released the equivalent of 2.9 kilotons of TNT, about one-seventh the power of the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima in 1945. I'm talking about the Halifax explosion. I've always been fascinated by this explosion, which completely changed Halifax forever. So buckle up, everybody. You're about to enjoy the longest episode of Canadian History X I've ever made. I want to start by looking at Halifax in the weeks leading up to the explosion because I feel that when we talk about the Halifax explosion, we only focus on the day of the explosion and after rather than the lead up to the day and the people who were going about their lives at the time unaware that a massive event was looming on the horizon. By the time the calendar turned over on 1917, Halifax had existed for 168 years dating back to June 21, 1749 when Edward Cornwallis landed with 13 transports full of settlers to establish a new community. Of course, the land had already been occupied for untold centuries by the Mi'kmaq people, who called the area of Halifax Chibuktuk, which means Great Harbour. Halifax would soon fill the role of being a Great Harbour when it became the headquarters for the Royal Navy in North America for decades. As with other communities, Halifax would go through booms and busts, and would see its importance increase during times of war, only to fade during peacetime. Now this episode isn't about the history of Halifax though, even though it is fascinating. This is the story of Halifax and the explosion that changed it, and for that we need to fast forward up to 1917. When 1917 came along, Halifax was one of the most important cities in North America. It was the headquarters for the Royal Navy, and just prior to the outbreak of the First World War in 1914, Halifax had gone through a huge upgrade to its harbour and waterfront facilities. When war was declared, Halifax was the jumping-off point for ships in the Atlantic convoys that would proceed to Europe with men and supplies. Within the harbour, merchant ships would gather at the Bedford Basin, where two sets of anti-submarine nets protected them. British cruisers and destroyers were also in the harbour to protect convoys as they departed, and searchlights and gun batteries provided an added sense of security for the ships in the harbour. The war had brought immense change to Halifax. Its population rose from 60,000 before the war to 65,000 by 1917, and the weight of goods passing through the harbour increased ninefold. A reason for this was all neutral ships bound for any port in North America had to report to Halifax first for inspection. And with 1917 arriving, Halifax was a world-class port and naval facility during the steamship era. 
The entire country of Canada connected to Halifax through a series of railways that all funneled like rivers leading to a delta into the city. It was from here that soldiers left and it was from here that soldiers returned. There was even talk of putting in a subway system in Halifax, but this was not pursued. With all of this, the city was overburdened. Its housing and transit facilities were straining under the weight of the war, and the city government did its best to keep up. Needless to say, there was a lot going on in Halifax as 1917 progressed towards 1918. For the residents of Halifax, with its importance in the war effort, there was a constant worry of German zeppelins coming over the ocean and dropping bombs on the city or German battleships arriving and blasting their guns towards Halifax. There were also rules in place regarding blackouts to protect ships coming into the harbour. A ship's silhouette against the lights of Halifax would be an easy target for a submarine. At night, the city descended into darkness, shades were drawn to keep light from homes getting out, and any opening where light could get through was covered. So what was happening in the city in the two weeks leading up to the disaster? Essentially, things went on as they always had in the community. Troops came and went, dignitaries visited, businesses opened and closed, and no one could expect what was about to hit the city. The biggest news at the time was the federal election, which would prove to be the most contentious and divisive in Canadian history. The ruling Conservatives had formed the Unionist government with several Liberals who supported conscription. The Conservatives had been in power since 1911, and the hope was that they would remain in power to implement conscription, something the Liberals and their leader, Sir Wilfrid Laurier, were firmly against. I covered the 1917 election on my podcast From John to Justin, so be sure to check it out. The Union government was led by Prime Minister Sir Robert Borden, the favourite son of Halifax. Borden had been born in Nova Scotia and had worked for many years before he became a politician in his law firm in Halifax. He represented many important Halifax businesses, and sat on boards in Halifax, such as the Bank of Nova Scotia. When November 22nd came around, two weeks before the explosion, the election campaign had been going on for about a month, and there was little doubt that Borden would once again win his riding. For the first time in his career, though, he would not represent Halifax as he stepped aside so another candidate for the party could run in his place, while he would run in Kings County, another district in Nova Scotia. On November 15th, he was in Halifax to open his campaign in a meeting held at Market Hall, and around 5,000 people came out to the meeting, including many women who could now vote thanks to having relatives fighting overseas in the war. Borden would say in that kickoff to his campaign, quote, Since Halifax was founded more than a century and a half ago, there have been no events in the world's history comparable to those which we have passed since August of 1914, end quote. Little did he know, only three weeks from then, Halifax would go through an event it would never have dreamed of. And Borden would return to Halifax a few weeks later, not to campaign, but to assess the destruction that had descended on the community he loved. On November 24th, many people in Halifax Harbour were surprised to see a brightly coloured ship that stood out from the grey ships that dominated the harbour. It was the sister ship of the Kirstjenfjord. Built as part of the Scandinavian-American line, it had 2,000 passengers described as undesirables. The Montreal Gazette would report, quote, They were watched with much interest from the decks of ships at anchor, for it is known that among the passengers are many undesirable citizens whom the United States have allowed safe passage back to Germany and Austria. The ship retains the gay colors of the Scandinavian-American line and presents a striking contrast to the somber grays and dizzy camouflage of the Allied ships, end quote. The same day, the bells of St. Paul's Anglican Church were rung in the city to celebrate the recent victory in France at Passchendaele. That church had a deep history in the community, dating back to 1750 when it was built. When the explosion hit, the church would survive, but a piece of wooden frame from another building was thrown into the wall of the church, where it remains to this very day. Only one stained glass window in the church would be damaged, but most of the regular windows were destroyed. The role of this church was large in the Halifax explosion, where it served as an emergency shelter, and it was also the only church in the city that could conduct a service the day after the explosion. On November 26, nearly 500 soldiers returned from the front lines in Europe and docked in Halifax. A large staff of medical officers were on hand to help the injured soldiers and get them ready to travel out on trains to British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. Most would be gone long before the explosion happened. With so many soldiers moving through the city, bootlegging was a significant problem. On November 28th, Private Edward Legg, who was attached to the Engineering Battalion, was arrested and found with $350 on his person. 
In a small hotel room, he had been making rum, which he then sold to soldiers who were looking for cheap alcohol. On November 29th, another ship of soldiers came into Halifax, 500 in total, with many seriously wounded or sick. Of the 500 who arrived, 300 would depart to other places in Canada, and another two ships were expected in the next day. Two men on the ship died en route and were buried at sea. On December 1st, another 1,500 arrived in the city, swelling the population of Halifax briefly. As ships came in with soldiers, other ships left with new recruits who were about to find themselves in hell when they were dropped into the French trenches. For many soldiers, the last time they would ever see Canada would be at Halifax Harbour, and for others, the sight of the harbour was enough to move them to tears as they realized they were back home and their time in the trenches was over. By December 3rd, the federal election was heating up in Halifax, and the community and province was a strong supporter of the Union government, so it was no surprise that the Halifax Chronicle came out in support of Borden and his government. The newspaper would report, quote, Let those who are openly or covertly promoting party opposition to the existing Union government try to be frank with themselves. Do they honestly believe that an exclusively liberal or conservative government under either Sir Wilfrid Laurier or Sir Robert Borden would be better for Canada or the Empire at present than the new Union government? End quote. Another 500 soldiers arrived in Halifax on December 3rd, with many severely injured. Lieutenant Robert Dibby, who was a champion oarsman, arrived back in Canada with those 500 soldiers. Described as having his head ripped open from ear to ear by a shell, he had spent three months in hospital before he could come home. During his time at the front, before a severe wound, he had been shot several times and suffered a fracture to his skull. On December 4th, it was reported that six soldiers were studying at the Halifax School for the Blind. The school had been opened decades earlier in 1871 with only four students. And when the explosion happened, only two days later, most of the students were taking music lessons in rooms away from the harbour. The building would survive the explosion and last until 1983 when it was torn down. On December 5th, the day before the apocalypse came to Halifax, Frank Carvel, who was a member of Parliament, was in the community to speak to residents about the election and why the Union government was the right government to vote for. At the time, he was the Minister of Public Works and 1,200 people came out to hear him. Carvel would go on to play a prominent role in the response to the explosion, working with Prime Minister Borden to help the city recover from the massive event. The day before the explosion, Halifax Harbour was full of ships. There was the British ship Middleham Castle, which had left dry dock and was quickly replaced by the Hovland, a Norwegian ship. And while the Hovland was being repaired, the Picton, a British ship, was waiting to enter dry dock. And while the ship sat in the water, the crew unloaded it in preparation for its own repairs. Two other ships, both British, sat in the harbour, the Caraca and the Cologne. Both ships were getting cargo in the form of horses who would soon find themselves taken from Canada and put into the meat grinder that was trench warfare, along with the soldiers who would ride them. There was also two submarines in the harbour, not German of course. At the time, Canada had only two submarines, the CC-1 and CC-2, and both sat in the harbour. On top of all of that, more ships sat in the harbour or at the entrance to the harbour. There was the Alfreda, Armstrong, Barrel, Liberty, and Lighter. Even the United States had ships on the harbour with the old colony in the Morrill. At the Acadia Sugar Factory, the Ragus was docked, as was the St. Bernard. Two armed merchant ships sat next to the immense high flyer, the British light cruiser that had a crew of 450 and measured in at 113 metres in length. The ship was far bigger than the three Canadian patrol vessels in the harbour, with the Acadia, Margaret and Cartier being the largest of the ships Canada had at Halifax at the time. At the time, there would be about a dozen wooden anti-submarine drifters measuring at 18 metres in length with a crew of 11 each in the area after having arrived from the shipyards. There were many tugboats, all moving around the much larger ships in the harbour and helping push them in and out of their positions. On December 5th, like most days, there were as many as 13 tugboats in the harbour, and the next day several of them would be right in the mix of things when two ships collided and changed Halifax. Two ferries, the Dartmouth 2 and the Halifax 2, also crisscrossed the harbour taking people to and from the communities in the days before the bridges were built. If all of this seemed like a lot, well it was. It's believed that on December 5, 1917, there were as many as 50 merchant ships in Bedford Basin alone, and among those ships was one of 27 that had arrived in the harbour, ready to be loaded before taking a slow convoy to Europe. That ship was called the Emo. Not quite arrived yet was the Mont Blanc, 
currently steaming towards where it would arrive on December 6th and its date with destiny. The Emo had been built in 1889 as part of the White Star Line, the same company that would build the Titanic. Launched as a Runic, it was a cargo liner that carried 12 passengers and freight, typically livestock. By 1912, it was named the Emo, and it was serving as a whaling supply ship. When the First World War erupted, the ship became the charter for the Belgian Relief Commission, a neutral ship she had Belgian Relief painted on the side of the ship to prevent German submarines from sinking her. And she would arrive in Halifax Harbour on December 3rd for neutral inspection, scheduled to spend two days awaiting refueling supplies. The ship was supposed to leave the harbour on December 5th before the arrival of the Mont Blanc, but due to a delay in the coal load for the Emo arriving, she could not leave before the submarine nets were put up for the night. As a result, the Emo would not be able to leave until the morning of December 6th. Small things can have huge impacts on history, and the delay in the coal load arriving would be such an event. If it had come on time, the Emo and the Mont Blanc would have never met in Halifax Harbour, and the explosion would never have happened. While the Emo was too late to leave the harbour because of the submarine nets going up, the Mont Blanc was too late to enter the harbour and had to wait until the following morning. The Mont Blanc had been launched the same year as the Emo, where it was owned by French owners but built in England. When the First World War began, the ship was put into service transporting wartime supplies for the French, and she had left New York December 1st to join a convoy to Halifax, loaded with explosives including picric acid, gun cotton, benzene, and TNT. Prior to the First World War, a ship loaded with explosives, as the Mont Blanc was, would not have been allowed within the harbour, but those rules were relaxed due to the threat of German submarines. For the night of December 5th, the Emo waited in the harbour to leave the next morning, while the Mont Blanc sat outside the harbour waiting for the nets to go down so that it could go into the harbour the next day. As the sun rose on Halifax on December 6th, it was a cool day and ship traffic began quickly and early in and out of the harbour as soon as the submarine nets were down. Due to the amount of ships in the harbour, any ship entering in and out of Bedford Basin were required to pass through the Narrows. Ships would have to pass on the side of the channel closest to their starboard or right side so they could pass oncoming vessels port to port by keeping them on their left side. As well, all ships were expected to move at a top speed of 5 knots or 9.3 kilometres in the harbour. At 7.30am, the Emo was granted clearance to leave Bedford Basin through signals sent by the HMCS Acadia, a guard ship in the harbour. Captain Hakon then had the Emo enter into the Narrows at a higher speed than was allowed in an effort to make up for the delay caused by the coal the previous day. As the Emo moved through the harbour, she came up on the SS Clara, an American steamer that was piloted on the wrong side of the harbour. The pilots of both ships agreed to pass each other starboard to starboard, rather than port to port, which pushed the Emo farther into the middle of the harbour and closer to the Dartmouth shore. The Emo then approached the Stella Marie, a tugboat, which observed the Emo moving at excessive speed, so Horatio Brannan, the captain of the tugboat, moved closer to the western shore in order to avoid the ship. At this time, Francis McKee, an experienced harbour pilot, was on the Mont Blanc, and the ship began moving into the harbour at 7.30am, becoming the second ship to enter the harbour after the nets went down. The ship would move into Bedford Basin on the Dartmouth side of the harbour. As the Mont Blanc headed into the harbour, McKee watched the ferry traffic and the other small boats in the harbour. Before long, he spotted a ship approaching 1.21 kilometres away. It was the Emo. McKee on the Mont Blanc sounded a signal whistle to indicate that his ship had the right of way. The Emo responded with two short blasts, stating that it would not yield its position. In response, the Mont Blanc halted her engines and began to angle herself towards the Dartmouth side of the harbour. The Mont Blanc then let go another signal whistle, which the Emo again responded to with two whistles. As the ships were now approaching each other on a collision course, they both cut their engines, but this didn't stop their movement due to momentum, but their speeds did decrease. McKee then ordered the Mont Blanc to steer hard to port to cross the bow of the Emo to avoid a collision. The Emo then blasted three whistles to state it was reversing its engines, which caused the Emo to swing towards the Mont Blanc. At 8.45am, the two ships collided, and at first there was nearly no damage beyond barrels of benzol that had been tipped over the deck and began to flow across the hold of the Mont Blanc. We were coming as slow as we possibly could, just steerage we on her. And the other ship was coming down on his wrong side. He was answering my one blast with two. Decidedly opposite to what he should do. 
should have answered me with one and kept close to the Halifax side. Instead of that, he had passed the ship on the wrong side up above in the basin, above the narrows, and when he got down, he kept over towards Tuff Coldway. The water looked wider to him. When he got down a little further, he found it was narrowing up across him, see? And he got cold feet and put a full speed astern when he was on my starboard side. In trying to avoid each other, both ships did the wrong thing at the same time. As a result, the Norwegian's bow cut a gash nine feet deep into the Frenchman's forehold, and of course, into his deck as well. Well, the Imo was a big, strong ship. In her time, she was a little white star liner, and she'd cut through us like a piece of cheese. The shark burst open some of the benzol drums. How did all this look aboard the stricken Imo? Bjarne Berklund, then third mate of the Emo, was interviewed in Norway last year by Julius Hogan. He recalls the critical moments. By some mistakes from the French ship, she crossed our course. So when the collision happened, the French ship started burning because she had a lot of drums with, uh, I don't know, but I, I think it was some chemicals on the foredeck. And they was crashed, and she went in flame. I said, the only thing to do is save your crew. I said, get him in the boat. Bjarne Berklund saw how the crew of the Mont Blanc heeded that advice. They lowered the lifeboats and pulled ashore to the Dartmouth side and went up in the wood to get shelter because they knew what kind of explosives Mont Blanc has. And did they escape, all of them? All of them was uh, escaped. Did they do anything to try to warn you? No, not at all. Because if they had done that, we should have time to get further away from the Mont Blanc before she was exploded. The Emo at this point restarted its engines and began to pull back from the Mont Blanc and the two ships grinded against each other, which in turn caused sparks. And a fire quickly started at the waterline of the Mont Blanc and traveled up the side of the ship. Knowing what was on the ship, the captain of the Mont Blanc thought that the ship would explode immediately, and he ordered the crew to abandon ship. Around this time, people began to gather at the shores of the harbor or at the windows of their homes to watch the fire burning in the harbor, unaware of the immense danger they were in. As the crew of the Mont Blanc abandoned ship, they yelled to people on shore and the ships that were coming in to respond to get away, trying to tell everyone that the ship was about to explode, but they could not be heard. In response to the fire, several ships started to make their way towards the Mont Blanc, and as the ship drifted towards Pier 6 on the Halifax side, the Stella Marie responded to the fire, spraying the burning ship with its fire hose. The HMS High Flyer and the HMCS Niobe both responded as well. By the time the ships arrived, the plates of the Mont Blanc were too hot to touch, which prevented the securing of a line to the ship to tow it away from the pier, which was also now on fire. A man named Vincent Coleman was standing in his telegraph office about 750 feet from Pier 6. A sailor running by told them of the cargo burning in the Mont Blanc, and Coleman quickly realized the danger to an incoming train from St. John. Coleman returned to his post and sent out a message. There are many variations of this message, but the most common relation has its same quote. Hold up the train. Ammunition ship a fire in the harbor making for Pier 6 and will explode. Yes, this will be my last message. Goodbye, boys. End quote. Then, at 9.04 a.m., the fire on the Mont Blanc, which by this point had spread throughout the ship and was burning ferociously, ignited the cargo of high explosives. Mr. Ruffman, the, the long-accepted fact is that the explosion happened... On December the 6th, 1917, 9.06 in the morning, right? Well, not quite, Michael. We've, uh, in fact, found the original seismic record. Uh, we, in fact, discovered that our Canadian seismic records were archived at Lamont Doherty Geological Observatory in uh, Columbia University. Got the seismic record from Halifax. We're able to nail down the time to 4 minutes, 35 seconds after 9. 9.04.35, then. That's the official time. Probably a couple of seconds, plus or minus. But this was, in effect... Uh, an extremely large explosion of a munition ship. It had drifted right into the shore of Halifax, and it was essentially a floating 2.9 kiloton bomb. 
There's a, there's another story that disputes the time, I understand, it to do with a sports writer named Ace Foley. Well, that's right. We uh, Ace Foley wrote a sports column, and he pointed out that um, this, this thing had to have occurred five minutes to nine because he was on the way to school. It occurred before he got to school, and he was never late for school. But there was a flood of letters came into the Halifax newspaper. Fifty-eight letters came into the letters to the editor saying, you know, Ace Foley's right or Ace Foley's wrong. Uh-huh. What Ace Foley had forgotten is that an economy move to save fuel, they had, in fact, adjusted the opening hour of school till 9.30. So probably everyone who wrote in was right. In effect, it happened before school opened. It happened before Ace Foley got to school. And um, it was probably very lucky for some people they weren't in school watching out the windows, even as it was a large number of children were killed in the north end of Halifax. In seconds, the entire ship was blown into pieces by a blast wave that extended out from the ship at a speed of one kilometer per second. At the moment of detonation, the Mont Blanc had been suddenly warmed to 5,000 degrees Celsius with the pressure of thousands of atmospheres. For a moment, the Halifax Harbor floor was exposed to the air due to the displacement of a huge volume of water by the explosion. When water surged in to fill this void, it produced a tsunami that rose as high as 60 feet above the water high mark on the Halifax side of the harbour. The blast cloud exploded into the air rising 11,800 feet and the blast itself was felt as far away as Cape Breton, which was over 200 kilometres away, as well as Prince Edward Island about 180 kilometres away. Moments after the explosion, with the blast wave shooting out, 400 acres of land was completely destroyed by the explosion. For the ships near the Mont Blanc, the blast was devastating. The Mont Blanc was blown into smithereens, which caused white-hot shards of iron to start falling down on Halifax, igniting fires throughout the city. Its 90mm gun landed 5.6 kilometers to the north, while its anchor, which weighed half a ton, landed 3.2 kilometers to the south. Other pieces of steel plating and shrapnel would be found 8 kilometers away from the blast zone, and while there were also reports that 56 kilometers away from the blast, a barn was lifted from its foundations. News reports also stated that at Sydney, Nova Scotia, 321 kilometers away, residents felt a slight earthquake from the explosion. Now some of these reports have to be taken with a grain of salt, as there may have been a bit embellishment. The emo was carried onto shore by the tsunami, and the blast killed all but one person on the high flyer. William Becker was the only survivor, although he was injured and had to swim to the Dartmouth shore. Two of the crew on the whaler survived for a few minutes before dying when they were pulled on shore. On the Stella Marie, 21 of 26 men were killed, and the ship was severely damaged and on the shore, taken there by the tsunami. One of the survivors on the ship was Walter Brandon, who had been thrown into the hole by the blast. On the Mont Blanc, the crew were able to get to safety and only one of the crew was killed in the blast. Out at sea, about 72 kilometers away from Halifax, two American vessels were coming in when the shock of the blast had the chief officer believing he had struck a mine, and then seeing a ship on the horizon, believed he had been fired upon. On Pier 6, firefighters from West Street Station 2 had arrived with the first motorized fire engine in Canada. As they were unrolling the hoses to fight the fire, the explosion occurred, and the firefighters were killed instantly. In Halifax, it was utter devastation. A total of 1,600 people were killed instantly and 9,000 were injured, 300 of whom died later. In a radius of 2.6 kilometers, 12,000 buildings were either destroyed or heavily damaged. A total of 1,630 homes were destroyed by fires in the explosion, leaving 6,000 homeless and 25,000 without enough shelter for the winter. In all, the blast caused $35 million in damages, about $607 million today, making it one of the costliest disasters in Canadian history. William Barton, a travelling auditor for the Imperial Munitions Board, was having breakfast at Halifax Hotel when the explosion happened. He would relate, quote, In ten seconds it was all over. A low rumbling, a quake shock with everything vibrating, then an indescribable noise, followed by the fall of plaster and the smashing of glass. In such moments the human mind does not hesitate. A cry went up, a German bomb, a rush for the door, headlong down the hallway amid falling pictures, glass and plaster, to the swing doors of a few seconds before, now ripped from their hinges through the great projecting triangular pieces of glass to the street. End quote. Once outside, Barton would describe the cloud he saw rising in the air, stating, quote, Outside overhead, a giant smoke cloud was moving northward. Danger seemed over. End quote. John Tappan, a 19-year-old apprentice pipe fitter, was working in an engine room on a ship anchored in Halifax Harbour. 
Someone came running in, yelling that two vessels had collided. Tappan went up on deck to see the emo and the burning Mont Blanc drifting apart. The last thing that Tappan remembered was watching the ship. When the explosion happened, he was thrown down a corridor into the interior of the ship. He would say decades later, quote, When I regained my senses, I noticed all the buttons on my vest had been blown off. End quote. Tappan climbed back on the deck to find most of his co-workers had been killed. Mr. Rudolph, can you tell me what you recall of your own activities the day of the explosion here? I had just, uh, I was a pupil at Chebecto School, which was over this way, a two-story brick school. And uh, we had, uh, we had, uh, sang the verse of the morning hymn and we were just sitting down. And of course, that always produced a clatter, but this particular morning the results were terrific. Uh, first, there was the jar of this, uh, of this slate bed on which the city is built. And then came the air blast a few seconds later, a terrific crack. Uh, all that saved us was that we were on the south side of the school, on the lee side of the blast, and the windows went out into the street. However, we were all hit by bits of plaster and so forth, and. Of course, the concussion was, was terrific. And uh, we were the only class in session at that particular moment. The younger classes were to come in half an hour later. And that saved uh, a frightful slaughter in Chebucto School. Uh, I went through the upper story looking for signs of fire at the headmaster's uh, suggestion. He went through the lower story. And then we both stepped outside. Up to this time, we all thought that it was an explosion right in the school. Everybody felt the same. They felt that their house had been hit by a shell. But when we stepped outside, we could see an enormous, grotesque mushroom growing in the northern sky and unfolding at the top and realized that something had happened up here. And uh, my home was only three doors from the school. So I, I went home. All the, uh, the doors and windows were gone. All the plaster was down. My mother was quite badly cut. She'd been looking out of a north window when the explosion happened, and she saw the terrific flash of light. And then, of course, the windows came in. And, um, well, they were sheltering, as they thought, at the back of the house because they thought that the, the house had been hit by a shell from a German warship. So when I arrived, I said that something else, something has happened up in Bedford Basin that uh, a ship must have exploded. And um, shortly after that, army trucks came around, soldiers yelling, get out of your houses, the magazine at the dockyard's on fire. And so everybody piled out. And there was a mass exodus of people who could still move uh, from the central parts and the north part of the city out towards the northwest arm and towards uh, what we called the Dutch village in those days. For those who were standing at their windows watching the fire burn, the blast hit their homes and smashed those windows, sending pieces of glass into their eyes, blinding many for the rest of their lives. A total of 5,900 eye injuries were reported, with 41 people losing their eyesight completely. Eric Davidson is an automobile mechanic. He lived here when he was age two. From here, he watched the fire. He saw the explosion. It was the last thing he ever saw. Well, you, you were only two and a half at the time. You can't remember very much about that, do you? Uh, no, I don't remember anything at the time. I remember things shortly after, when I was about three and a half years old. At uh, the time of the explosion, it was 1917, December the 6th, about six minutes before nine o'clock in the morning. And uh, my mother and sister and I had just had our breakfast. My father had just gone to work. Uh, I was playing on the windowsill and looking out the window, playing with a little toy train, and uh, I heard the boat blown in the harbor, and I asked my mother what that was. She explained to me and took two knives from the table to demonstrate 
how two uh, steamers would be coming towards each other and blowing their whistles. And then it happened. With the blast, stoves and lamps were thrown through buildings, causing fires to erupt throughout Halifax. In the north end of the city, entire blocks burned to the ground while residents were trapped in their homes. Billy Wells, a local firefighter, was thrown through the air in the explosion and had his clothes torn from his body. He would say of the devastation, quote, The sight was awful, with people hanging out of their windows dead, some with their heads missing, some thrown onto the overhead telegraph wires. End quote. The Acadia Sugar Factory, located near Pier 6, was reduced to rubble, and most of the workers inside were killed. The Nova Scotia Cotton Mill, located 1.5 kilometers from the blast, was destroyed by a fire, and its concrete floors collapsed. The Royal Navy College of Canada was heavily damaged, and the students inside were maimed in the blast. The Richmond Railway Yards and Station was destroyed, killing 55 workers and destroying 500 railway cars. The Protestant Orphanage suffered terribly, losing its matron and all but two of its children in the explosion, and another 30 girls working for the Richmond Printing Company were all killed as well. At the Richmond School, most of the children in attendance were killed in the blast, but one child was blown through the ruins and essentially unhurt. Cora Matheson would suffer two broken legs and had a dangerous wound on her head. When the explosion occurred, she was knocked out of her father's house and fell on the road. When she awoke, her fur coat had been taken off her body. Rather than being a case of looting, this was likely someone believing that she was dead and taking the coat to be used to keep warm either for themselves or someone else. David Inch was working in the exhibition grounds when the explosion occurred. He came home to find his wife missing. Her body would later be found, and she had tragically died. One family, the Hefflers, lost 20 members in the explosion. Austin was born just shortly before the Halifax explosion. He was a small babe in swaddling clothes at the time, and uh, miraculously escaped the blast. <clears throat> I was on my way to to a public school, Tower Road School in the south end of Halifax at the time, in company with a couple of friends of mine, one of whom was uh, Hugh McLennan, who years later wrote the Barometer Rising, uh, based on that uh, unhappy day in Halifax, or at least it worked up to the explosion, as I recall. He also wrote the Two Solitudes, too, didn't he? Yes, and a, and a good many uh, other things among them some notably fine short stories. Uh, we always have been and still are very, very proud of Hugh McClellan in Halifax. Uh, when, when did you connect up with Mother that day, Frank? I always wanted to ask you. She ran out of the house holding me, I understand, went down to a vacant field. Uh, yes, well, you see, the thing was, we were, I was halfway to school with... Uh, Peter Mitchell, we were both looking in Mrs. Doody's candy store. <laughs> Believe it or not, it's not a gag. That was really her name, Mrs. Doody. <laughs> she kept a small penny candy store on the corner of Bland and Victoria Road. And we were admiring the, uh, uh, the I don't think they had Tootsie Rolls in those days. <laughs> they were called Old Fashions and uh, yeah, licorice kiss. kisses and licorice whips and plugs and so on. And uh, I think we had uh, a penny apiece to spend, and we were very painstakingly make, making our selection when uh, the shock of the blast, the shock of the explosion, was transmitted through the rock structure Halifax is built, as perhaps you know, on a peninsula of solid slate. And uh, the ground rumbled uh, as though it were a gigantic earthquake. In fact, it moved back and forth several inches, it seemed. And the old lady shouted through the window. She said, what is that? And at the time, they were blasting through the uh, south terminal, the ocean terminal at Halifax. There was a good deal of blasting going on in the community. And I said, oh, I think it's, a, it's a blasting down at the south terminal. I had time enough to say that when the uh, blast of the explosion came through the air and the window through which we were looking at the candy was blown in, although we were facing the harbor. It was a backdraft, probably caused by the vacuum. Uh, the explosion went, the bang, and uh, created this vacuum, and then all the air, <clears throat> practically all the air in the city, was sucked into the epicenter of the blast, and this great window went in on uh, Mrs. Doody rather than blowing out on myself and my little chum. Otherwise, we surely would have been blinded. Mrs. Doody, as it was, was cut all to pieces. 
Third Officer Mayers of the British Transport Middleton Castle was 200 yards from the explosion when it happened. Standing on the deck about to step into a small boat to go ashore, he was knocked out by the blast. And when he came to, he was 800 meters away and all of his clothing had been blown off his body, but he survived. Soldiers digging in a rubble heard the faint bark of a dog. As they cleared the rubble, they found not only a dog, but a three-year-old boy next to him still alive and unbruised. In another home, a family of five had been killed, but their kitten was found alive. Throughout the city, hundreds of pigeons were dead from the blast littering the ground. The Montreal Gazette would write after the explosion, quote, Under the force of the explosion, houses crumpled while the unfortunate residents met death in the debris. In the west and northwest end, the damage was more extensive and the walls of houses were in place blown to atoms and the plaster strewn on the streets, making them more like a shelled section of Flanders than a Canadian town. A few minutes after the explosion occurred, the streets were filled with terror-stricken people trying to make their way as best they might to the outskirts in order to get out of the range of what they thought to be a German raid. Women rushed terror-stricken through the streets, many of them with children clasped to their breasts. In their eyes was a look of terror as they struggled on with blood-stained, horror-stricken faces, endeavoring to get away from the falling masonry and crumbling walls. By the littered roadsides as they passed, there could be seen the remains of what had once been human beings, now torn and mangled beyond realization of what had occurred. End quote. The streets of Richmond were littered with heads, arms, legs, and mutilated trunks. People indoors were killed outright when the houses collapsed or they lay with broken limbs trapped in the ruins. From the completely flattened area of Richmond into the heart of Halifax, most of the house frames and roofs survived the blast, but their doors and windows were shattered, and so was all the plaster on the walls and ceilings. Windows became slivers of broken glass, driven with the velocity of a bullet, so that thousands of men, women, and children were slashed or stabbed and many were blinded. Albert Wood was a young schoolboy at the time, but he recalls the disaster quite clearly. We were all, you know, cut up with glass and uh, all sort of like a piece of raw meat. We were so peppered with glass that uh, years after, you were still picking glass out of yourself. And in fact, a cousin of mine, oh, I guess it was 20 years after, had a piece of glass come out of the back of her neck or someplace that stuck in there, but it was a common thing for years afterward to, you'd scratch your face or your head or the back of your neck and you'd feel something sharp and you'd dig around at it and it would be a piece of glass working out. It stayed in all that time. Thanks to Coleman, the telegraph operator, that train that was supposed to arrive was stopped at a safe distance from the blast, saving 300 lives. While Coleman was killed in the blast, his message sent out before the telegraph lines were destroyed in the city was responsible for bringing all incoming trains towards Halifax to a halt, but it was also heard by other stations along the Intercolonial Railway, and it allowed for rescue and relief efforts to start immediately, thereby speeding up the process of bringing help to the stricken community. My God, look at that! Thank God she's a half a mile away. Huh? She's loaded, boys! You gotta get out of here! It's full of explosives! Children! Oh no! Don't get out of here! Vince! Please, get these children out of here. That ship is going to blow. No! Mr. Coleman! Hurry! Hurry! you got to get these people out of here. That ship is going to blow. The train. What? People, get out of here. It's going to blow up. Mission ship on fire. Stop train. Please, God, answer. Coleman, there's no time. The train's coming in towards Pier 6. I've got to warn you. Come on, Vince. Come on. There are 700 people aboard it. I've got to stop it. Come on, acknowledge! Halifax was devastated. 9,000 wounded, 2,000 dead, including Vince Coleman, dispatcher. A dispatch was received by J.D. Reed, the Minister of Railways, from the Division Superintendent out of Moncton, which stated, quote, the fire is spreading. We are sending special trains out of Moncton, and every city with fire apparatus is also being called out. We are picking up fire apparatus between Moncton and Sydney and rushing it to Halifax. The situation is bad. Every building north of Queen's Hotel is totally wrecked. North Street Station is in ruins, as well as our plant at Willow Park, and there is one massive fire, wreckage, and dead bodies in the north end of the city. End quote. Halifax was by far the worst-hit community, 
but it was not the only one to be impacted by the massive explosion. Dartmouth was on the other side of the harbour, but would still suffer heavy damage, with 100 people losing their lives. Several buildings were also destroyed or heavily damaged. Nearby to Halifax was the Micmac Settlement, located opposite of Pier 9. At the time, many white landowners wanted to remove the Micmac from the location so that the land could be used for development, but the Micmac refused to move. When the explosion happened, most of the physical structures in the settlement were completely destroyed and were not rebuilt afterwards. It's known that at least 16 died in the settlement, but the number is probably much higher. Survivors from the Micmac settlement were not taken back to their land, but instead put into racially segregated buildings that was in poor condition and then dispersed around the province. Africville was a black settlement that had existed since the mid-19th century, and thanks to the raised ground to the south, it was spared the direct force of the explosion, but due to the frail condition of the buildings, many were still destroyed and five people died. At the time, Africville had no police or fire protection, nor any water or sewer lines due to racism at the time, and the belief that the residents should move to make way for industrial development. When relief funds came in from across Canada, nearly nothing went to Africville, and the reconstruction of Halifax did not happen in Africville at all. I covered Africville in a previous episode, and you can find a link in the transcript of this episode on my website. In the evening editions of newspapers around Canada, the headlines spoke of the devastation throughout Halifax. The Winnipeg Tribune would report, quote, The news is not authentic. No official reports can be obtained. There is no direct telegraphic or telephonic communication with Halifax, end quote. Because of this, rampant rumor would spread out from Halifax over the cause of the explosion. In Washington, D.C., the rumor was that a Belgian relief ship rammed a vessel loaded with ammunition, while another rumor stated that the collision was caused by a British cruiser. Another rumor stated that an American ship was rammed in the harbor. The first rescuers were those who survived the initial blast in Halifax. Neighbors and co-workers began to dig out their friends and relatives and were soon joined by soldiers stationed in the city, as well as firefighters and policemen. Firefighters came from as far away as Moncton and Amherst, distances of 200 and 260 kilometers by the end of the day. A private Henenberry had returned home from the front, wounded only days previous, and he was found digging frantically in the rubble and was reported saying, quote, Here was my home, and I am sure I heard a moan a moment ago, end quote. Other soldiers helped him dig, and they found his 18-month-old baby, Olive, who had been protected when the protruding ash pan of the stove shielded her from wounds. And while he was overjoyed to find her, he soon found the dead bodies of his wife and five other children. Another soldier, unnamed, who had just returned home from the front, found his wife and children dead. Rather than falling into despair, he helped relief efforts, stating, quote, I must do something or go mad, end quote. Due to the extent of the damage, pretty much every vehicle in the city was put into service, including cars, delivery wagons, trucks, and more to collect the dead and wounded. Arthur Bemis, who had suffered a broken rib in the explosion, did not seek help, but instead used his car to transport wounded all day until he finally collapsed and was taken to the hospital. Another man, who had part of his face blown away, worked in the ruins to rescue survivors. For days afterwards, wounded would be found in the rubble of buildings. One child was found on December 8th in the rubble of his home, mostly unhurt. One six-year-old child was blown through the roof of his house in the explosion, rolled down the roof of another house and fell on the ground and suffered only a few scratches on his cheeks. One girl named Lola Burns was saying morning prayers next to her bed when the explosion occurred. The house around her collapsed but the timbers fell in such a way to create a tent over her, saving her from being crushed. One fact that often gets ignored is that due to the explosion and the stress of the situation for survivors, a large number of premature births were recorded in Halifax after the explosion. With the amount of wounded in the city numbering upwards of 9,000, the hospitals were soon swarmed with people and doctors and they were overwhelmed, working for days on end with little rest. At Camp Hill, a military hospital, 1,400 people were admitted on December 6th alone. Immediately, we started uh, to sew up cuts and look after, so far as we could, eyes that were gone. There were a great many people suffered from cuts about the face and hands and, and a great many eyes were lost and the house was practically filled with people in this condition. My wife and I sewed up as many as we could. Such suture material as I had was quickly used up 
with the wholesale demand upon it. And we began to use ordinary cotton thread, sterilized beforehand in a kind of a way. Later that day, Dr. Corston went to Camp Hill Hospital, and he tells what he found. The increasing numbers of uh, broken arms and lacerated faces and such like came into the hospital there, oh, by the hundreds, you might say, and we kept sewing up cuts and looking after broken arms and things uh, all day, and there were some more serious injuries, too, uh, fractured pelvis and such like. A good many deaths among those. Uh, but the point is the, the number, the number of them. We had four, four teams working uh, when we got things going a bit, working in different parts of the hospital and just doing them as fast as we could. The Chibacto Road School would become the central morgue with the Royal Canadian Engineers converting the basement of the school into a morgue and the classrooms into offices for the Halifax coroner before long wagons and trucks began delivering a steady stream of dead to the new morgue. Arthur Barnstead was the coroner in charge, and he would implement a system created by his father, John Barnstead, to number and describe the bodies. This system was developed when victims of the Titanic began to arrive in Halifax in 1912. One of the first organizations to respond was the Royal Navy, which sent rescue parties ashore as well as medical personnel. They would then turn their ships into floating hospitals and many wounded were brought on board. The United States quickly responded as well. The USRC Morrill, the USS Tacoma, and the USS Von Steven were all in the area when they saw the explosion happen and quickly altered course to come to Halifax to help. In Halifax Harbor, the American steamship Old Colony was docked. As it only suffered slight damage, it was turned into a hospital ship manned by American and British doctors. A train from St. John was arriving in Halifax when the explosion occurred, but it was only slightly damaged and was able to continue moving. It would continue towards Halifax until it was blocked by wreckage. At this point, passengers and soldiers took emergency tools and began to dig people out of the rubble, using sheets from sleeping cars as bandages. The train would be loaded with injured people and then sent to hospitals outside of Halifax. Boston responded almost immediately. State Governor Samuel McCall immediately sent a telegram to the mayor of Halifax stating, quote, Understand your city is in danger from explosion and conflagration. Reports only fragmentary. We stand ready to go to the limit in rendering every assistance you may be in need of. Wire me immediately. End quote. The executive manager of the State Committee of Public Safety, Henry Edicott, immediately called a meeting to discuss how aid could be offered to Halifax. It was through Boston that huge amounts of food, furniture, clothing, and medical supplies would be sent to Halifax to help. In addition, many doctors and nurses came from various American states to Boston to take trains into Halifax to render their assistance, where they were set up at temporary hospitals and helped the wounded throughout the city. Aid would also come from Washington and New York City, with a Red Cross relief train coming out of the city with five cars loaded with food, clothing, and medical supplies. American soldiers from a nearby troop ship also went to Halifax to serve as police in the streets through the evening to prevent looting, of which there was nearly none. In Winnipeg, Mayor Davidson immediately called for aid from citizens to help Halifax, a common thread throughout North America to help the stricken city. The Winnipeg Tribune included a fill-in-the-blank pledge on its front page that allowed its subscribers to donate any amount and send it to the newspaper. Mayor Church of Toronto immediately offered any relief Halifax needed. He telegraphed Halifax, stating, quote, Please accept Toronto's deepest sympathy in the terrible calamity. Advise us forthwith what assistance and aid we can give you, and will dispatch any aid necessary by special train. Do not fail to call upon us. Toronto's heart goes out to you. End quote. The Canadian government would pledge $1 million to Halifax on December 10th, with the funds placed in the hands of the Citizens Finance Committee. Sir Robert Borden would give $1,000 almost immediately. King George V would send condolences to the people of Halifax, stating, quote, Most deeply regret to hear of severe explosion at Halifax, resulting in the great loss of life and property. Please convey to the people of Halifax, where I have spent so many happy times, my true sympathy in this grievous calamity. End quote. There was a worry over a second explosion happening, and steam shooting out of ventilators of the ammunition magazine at Wellington Barracks had many believing a new explosion was going to happen. 
The rumor spread throughout the city and people fled from their homes and created confusion that would hamper rescue efforts for two hours. By noon, Lieutenant Governor McMullen Grant and other leading citizens in the community formed the Halifax Relief Commission. This commission organized medical relief for Halifax, providing food and shelter while also covering the cost of medical care and funerals. They would later provide pensions for people and the commission would last until the 1970s. People throughout Halifax banded together to begin to help each other. Men and women helped in hospitals and shelters, while children ran messages between sites as the telegraph and telephone lines were all down. Almost as soon as the disaster happened, rescue trains began to be dispatched from across the region, including the United States. The first train would leave Truro at 10 a.m. with doctors, nurses, and medical supplies. It would reach Halifax by noon and then return with wounded and homeless by 3 p.m. By the end of the day, a dozen trains had reached Halifax from across Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. The day after the disaster, a terrible blizzard hit the community, dropping 41 centimeters of snow. This storm, which added insult to injury, caused trains to be stalled in snowdrifts, while newly repaired telegraph lines were knocked down once more by the weight of the heavy snow. The only good news from the storm was that it helped put out fires that were burning throughout the community. While initial reports were that 300 people died in the explosion, the following day reports stated that between 2,000 and 5,000 people died. Prime Minister Robert Borden would return to the city on December 7th, finding it in ruins and many of his friends missing, presumed dead. He had cancelled two meetings to rush to the city to get to the city to consult with authorities and assist while assuring the population of government help. He would cancel the rest of his campaign and focus on helping Halifax, and he would thank the United States for their help, stating, quote, The people of Canada are profoundly grateful for the generous sympathy of the United States in the terrible disaster which has overtaken the city of Halifax, and they most deeply appreciate the splendid aid which has been offered and sent from so many communities of our great kindred nation. End quote. Colonel McKelvey Bell stated that despite spending two years on the firing line in France, he never saw anything to equal the scene in Halifax. Reverend M. F. Fallon, the Roman Catholic Bishop of London, would send words stating, quote, It is no exaggeration to say that the eyes of the world are fixed on Canada today. End quote. Throughout the city following the explosion, it was said that carpenters and property owners were busy boarding up their premises to keep out the snowstorm, and all power plants in the city were out of commission. As trains did flood into the community, there was another problem. Telegraph lines were swamped with messages from politicians, officials, and loved ones, all looking to get information on what happened. Many telegraph messages didn't get through, which had people across North America sending more messages. In addition, along with trains of supplies, doctors, and nurses, there were trains of people coming in to find out what had happened, to search for loved ones, and to volunteer themselves. By December 10th, Halifax was asking that anyone with no business in Halifax to stay away, and all residents not engaged in relief work were asked to leave Halifax as well. Throughout the city, those who survived the explosion were then setting out on the grim task of finding loved ones at morgues. The Windsor Star would report, quote, Weary survivors who have searched the temporary morgues for missing relatives went to hospitals to continue the heartbreaking hunt. End quote. As soon as Halifax recovered from the initial shock of the explosion, the investigation into what happened started. Due to the fact that Halifax was so important to the war effort, most people believed that the explosion was a German attack, and the helmsman of the emo was arrested on suspicions of being a German spy due to having a letter supposedly written in German, which turned out to actually be Norwegian. Within Halifax, German residents were soon rounded up and imprisoned on suspicions of being spies by city police. Corporation Consul T.A. Hunt would say when discussing the possibility of German sabotage, quote, Any man who is disloyal to Canada should be shot. German enemies in this country should be lashed and shot. They would not get away with disloyal acts anywhere else. End quote. On December 10th, the Windsor Star reported, quote, All German citizens of Halifax are being arrested today. They were ordered into custody regardless of sex. Seven men and one woman have been arrested up to a late hour last night, and others are being rounded up as rapidly as possible. End quote. Even as the real reason for the explosion came to light, many still believed that Germans were involved. The Rec Commissioner's inquiry was formed to investigate the cause of the explosion, with proceedings beginning on December 13th, one week after the explosion. They were presided over by Justice Arthur Drysdale. On February 4, 1918, blame was put on the captain and pilot of the Mont Blanc, as well as Mackey and the chief examining officer for the Royal Canadian Navy, Commander F. Evan Wyatt, who was in charge of the harbour, gates, and anti-submarine defences. 
Justice Drysdale would agree with the opinion that the Mont Blanc was solely to blame for the explosion, as she should have avoided collision at all costs due to her cargo. At the time, local opinion was very anti-French due to the issues over the conscription crisis, and that likely influenced the outcome heavily. Even though the emo was on the wrong side of the channel, it escaped blame in the inquiry. Mackey, as well as the captain and pilot of the Mont Blanc, were charged with manslaughter and criminal negligence. Benjamin Russell, a Nova Scotia Supreme Court justice, would find no evidence to support the charges, and in the end, no one was convicted. The owners of both ships would embark on a civil litigation trial in which they sought damages from each other. Justice Drysdale would again rule that the Mont Blanc was entirely at fault on April 27, 1918. Appeals would go to the Supreme Court of Canada on May 19, 1919, and the highest court, the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, on March 22, 1920, and it was eventually determined both ships were equally to blame. Reconstruction efforts would begin almost immediately in Halifax, but the damage was so extensive that even by January 1918, 5,000 people still had no shelter. Even into 1919, the last body of the Halifax explosion would be found. The Reconstruction Committee would build 832 new housing units, which were furnished by relief funds. On December 7th, partial train service returned to Halifax, and on December 9th, full service began. The Canadian government railways created a special unit to repair and clear rail yards, and the piers in Halifax Harbour would be back in operation by late December and fully repaired by January. The north end of Halifax would be completely modernized after the disaster, with more public access to green spaces, as well as low-rise, low-density, and multifunctional urban neighbourhoods. A total of 326 large homes were built facing a tree-lined paved boulevard, all of which were built of fireproof materials. Due to this reconstruction, the north end became an upscale neighbourhood and shopping district. The explosion remained a watershed moment for Halifax and Canada. The explosion itself became the standard by which all large explosions were measured until the dropping of the atomic bombs. In fact, when the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, Time magazine stated it had the power of seven Halifax explosions. There would be other benefits from the explosion as well. The extensive damage to eyes would result in the newly formed Canadian Institute for the Blind in Halifax becoming an internationally known centre for care of the blind. Pediatric care after the disaster would improve throughout North America thanks to William Ladd, who came to help and used his insights to pioneer pediatric surgery in North America. The explosion would also inspire health reforms, public sanitation improvements, and a focus on maternity care. In 1918, Halifax sent a Christmas tree to Boston to thank the community for its help, especially the Boston Red Cross. For decades, this would not be a tradition, but in 1971, it was revived, and now, an annual donation of a large tree is done from Halifax to Boston. The tree is now Boston's official Christmas tree, and it is lit at Boston Common. The Nova Scotia Department of Natural Resources has guidelines for selecting the tree, and one employee is chosen to oversee the selection. For Halifax, the explosion was deeply traumatic. A ceremony would be held on the first anniversary of the explosion, but there would not be another one until 1967 for the 50th anniversary. The Halifax North Memorial Library was built in 1964 to commemorate the victims of the explosion, and this building would feature the first monument to mark the explosion. Designed by Jordi Bonnet, the Halifax Explosion Memorial sculpture would exist until 2004 when it was put into storage, where it was mostly destroyed. In 2015, the remaining fragments were sent to the Bonnet family, and at the library, a full list of the victims of the disaster is on display. In 1985, the Halifax Explosion Memorial bells were built, facing Halifax Harbour. It is at this bell tower that an annual civic ceremony is held every December 6th now. The world had never seen anything like it. Until the Americans dropped an atom bomb, it was the largest man-made explosion in history. A French munitions ship, the Mont Blanc, and the Belgian relief ship, Emo, collided in Halifax Harbor. A few minutes after 9 o'clock in the morning, the Mont Blanc, loaded with 2,500 tons of explosives, blew up. 2,000 people were killed, 10,000 people were injured, 25,000 people lost their homes. Windows were broken 100 kilometers away. The suffering, the hardship, was unbelievable. But other than a few small reminders scattered throughout the city, there's never been a major memorial. But now that's changed. At Fort Needham, overlooking the explosion site, a permanent memorial was completed earlier this year. 
This morning, a handful of survivors was among the small group gathered on the hill to pause and remember that day 68 years ago. It was planned to have a time capsule placed in the memorial by one of the survivors. However, there was a problem. It wouldn't fit. There's an embarrassment here. We put some additional tape. Is this being recorded? Some fiberglass. And it's about a quarter of an inch too thick with the tape on it. Fit on Tuesday. Can you believe that? But fit or not, Halifax now has a fitting memorial to that day the city almost died. Paul Barr, CBC News, Halifax. Throughout Halifax and Dartmouth, fragments of the Mont Blanc are mounted as monuments to the explosion. In 1994, historian Jay White looked at 130 major explosions in human history and five criteria of casualties, force of the blast, devastation, quantity of explosive material, and property damage values. Using that criteria, White stated that the Halifax explosion was unrivaled in terms of the overall magnitude with the consideration of all of those criteria together. Today, the Halifax explosion is over a century in the past, yet it still looms as the worst disaster in Canadian history. And I will end this episode with what John Tappan said in 1993. He said, quote, I'm getting to an age where I have trouble remembering certain things, but there are some things I will never forget. End quote. I hope you enjoyed that episode about the Halifax explosion. Next week, I'm looking at women's suffrage. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. And you can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Vobs, Robert Page, Richard D., Colin Johnson, Katie Caldwell, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, an anonymous patron that I truly do appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseeth, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Information from Saskatoon Daily Star, Ottawa Citizen, Canadian Encyclopedia, Wikipedia, the Vancouver Province, Edmonton Journal, Montreal Gazette, the Regina Leader Post, Catastrophe, Halifax Public Libraries, Winnipeg Tribune, Windsor Star, Ottawa Journal, McLean's, and the Vancouver Sun. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.